Hi everyone, Data Stories number 17. Again on on the Google Hangout. We cannot stop doing that, Moritz. How are you? Great, thanks, Enrico. How are you? Have you recovered a bit from your flu? It's been crazy. I had a long uh, last week. I I was so sick. I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> I don't know what kind of flu they have here on the other part of on the other side of the of the ocean. I never had such a strong flu. It's crazy. I'm still recovering. Anyway, now I'm fine. I'm in my office and I feel much much better. <sighs> How about you? Good, good. I mean, I'm just having a cold, but probably not comparable to your killer flu yeah, it's been, it's been <laughs> yeah and the year is starting to kick in so now everybody wants to do projects and has funny ideas and so on so yeah yeah we are all overwhelmed anyway so let's start with the main topic of the of this episode we have a couple of guests today and we're gonna talk about data sculptures or also known as physical visualization so we have Yvonne Jansen and Pierre Dragicevic uh, from Paris. Hi, Pierre. Hi, Yvonne. How are you? Hi, good. Hi. So it's it's great to have you on the show today. So let me let me give a brief introduction about about you, who you are, and why we decided to have this episode. So Pierre and uh, and Yvonne they are researchers in uh, at the IRIA in Paris, one of the leading. Uh, uh, data visualization and human computer interaction groups and uh, the the reason why we organized this this uh, episode on data sculpture is because i met them some months ago at the this week conference and i saw uh, the fantastic work they are, they have been doing on analyzing physical visualizations which basically means instead of having visualization displayed on the screen there is a physical object that shows the data and and they are going to show us some of these some of these little little toys and um after after the meeting them at this week uh, i actually uh, we stayed in touch and i discovered they have a nice web page where they are collecting examples of physical visualizations and another interesting things we are going to talk about today is a is a study that they recently run um, an experiment comparing different kinds of visualizations some digital some physical, anything they're gonna explain us uh, what the results of these studies are um, so Pierre and Yvonne, do you want to introduce yourself a little better and and tell uh, to the our listeners who you are, what you are doing, what are your interests first? Pierre, you want to start? Yeah, I guess you already introduced me. So I'm basically a, a researcher at Inria in the at the Avis team, uh, working on uh, information visualization and uh, human computer interaction. My background is actually uh, human computer interaction originally, and I started doing research uh, on InfoViz uh, when I joined INRIA in 2007. So it's been already five years, but I still consider myself as a novice and newcomer. <laughs> yes. And Yvonne? Uh, yes, I'm a PhD student, um, uh, supervised by uh, Pierre and uh, Jean-Daniel Fiquet, and I'm working on physical information visualization. And I'm... Yes, exploring how um, physical objects can be used for uh, yeah information visualization. Okay, great. 
So can you suggest before we move on to describing anything, can you show us any of the any of these tools that you've been building so people can understand what we are talking about before we move on to describe um, your, your I study have, or, my uh, office is filled with these yeah. <laughs> little objects, which is basically what I studied last year. Yeah. And um, which I evaluated to uh, to find out whether those are actually suitable to, to read the data, not just as uh, pretty colorful objects. Yeah, yeah. So can you guys briefly, I would like to start from describing the, the study that you run, because I think it's a, it's a very interesting study with interesting results. Can you briefly describe what you did and what you found? Okay, so um, yes, as I said, we wanted to uh, assess whether... Um, these objects are actually useful to read the data. So um, we built a lot of those, well, 13 to be exact, and um, we created this uh, equivalent screen versions. And we wanted to see how they differ in uh, efficiency to be um, to solve simple tasks, to um, to read values, to um, uh, yeah, to deal with occlusion, and to to find. Uh, data points and compare them in size. Mm -hmm. And so we compared this to the same thing on screen, which yeah, I currently cannot show. Uh, anyways, it looks almost the same. Um, could similarly uh, be manipulated with the mouse just by uh, rotating it, basically these angles. And... Um, Yes, so we uh, also included um, two control conditions for this to um, to see how much uh, this is due to stereo cues. So with a physical object, you always have perfect stereo cues. So we had the stereoscopic uh, condition with the 3D screen and um, a 2D control condition where we had a, a very nice interactive 2D visualization where you could basically... Um, get something like a top view as a matrix. And uh, you could click rows or columns to uh, get a slice, a 2D slice. And so what we basically found is that, um, yes, 2D works uh, better. You get a very nice 2D cut. And as long as the task uh, can be solved with this cut, it works very well. Um, but the physical works better than an on-screen version. And for this, this basically um, made, made us wonder why, how, how come, what are the benefits, since mm -hmm. the stereoscopic didn't really help. Okay. So basically, what you found is that 2D is always better, but as soon as you move to a 3D representation, then physical is better, right? So if you have a 3D representation of this bar chart on the screen, that's going to perform worse than the physical yes. counterpart, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. And so uh, can I ask one question about the data and about the, the tasks people had to do? Yes, so the data, those are all country indicators taken from um, Gapminder, actually, from the um, data sets available on the Gapminder website. And so this, for example, is uh, armed forces personnel. So how many people in the country work uh, in the army? 
Oh, I have another one on how much money is spent on education. I have one on unemployment rates. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and so what are the axes? Is it countries and years or countries? Exactly. It's countries yeah. against years. Uh -huh. Countries against yes. years. Okay. So one color is one country. And then the other axes are the years. Yeah. And the task would be to compare two values or to find the highest or lowest or, or what pe did people have to do? Uh, we have three tasks. So one was to um, to find one country, to identify one country and then give the range. So basically the lowest and the highest value for that country, which actually required to read the values. Um, another task was to sort all countries for one year uh, ascendingly. So it required a lot of uh, turning around uh, to deal with occlusion. And the third one was to find three specific data points and say which one is the, the lowest. Okay. Yeah. And this was the only task which could not be solved with a 2D cut since they were all uh, non-adjacent. And so for this one, the 2D performed still better, but the, the difference was much lower. So there it was only 15. And in overall, it, I think it was something like 40% uh, difference, something around that. Okay. And then you had some follow-up studies to understand why, why physical visualization performed better in some cases. Yes, exactly. So we videotaped the participants and um, looked at how they solved the tasks. And so we found that they, they used their fingers a lot for, um, to, to mark and to, um, to retrieve values to orient themselves within the chart. And so um, the more they did this, the, the better they seemed to perform. And so we wanted to test this hypothesis. And so we did a second experiment where we um, basically had a, um, only the physical and the on-screen. And we added two conditions where we tried to um, make the on-screen version better by giving a physical control. So they rotated in the same way. They had, um, so that's this one actually. Uh -huh. <laughs> that's prop. So there's a sensor underneath and it was directly linked to the on-screen model. So you could manipulate it in the same way, uh -huh. um, but you saw the data on the screen. And for the physical, we uh, had two different versions. One, we uh, explicitly uh, asked people to use their fingers to help solve the task. And the other one, we uh, reminded them constantly to not do that. Okay. And so what we found in the end was that... Um, Yes, using your fingers uh, gives you an advantage, makes you faster. It was about 15, 18%, something like that. Um, but even without the fingers, this was still faster than the prop. It was uh -huh. about roughly the same distance um, between the touch and the no touch and the no touch and the prop. But so uh, the, this means that there is a value in actually seeing the physical artifact. Yes. Yes. Okay. And um, touching it. <laughs> and yes. touching it, of course. <laughs> yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, also, um, participants found it kind of frustrating to uh, not being able to touch. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
because you're you always some... tempted to to touch it, right? Oh yes, it's a physical object. It's uh, it kind of invites you to touch it. Yeah, I actually remember the first time I saw it when we were at, at this week. The first thing I I did was taking it, holding it in my hands, and, and really touch it. You feel like oh, you, you try to solve some kind of questions, and the first thing you do is is touch it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yes, it's a very nice property of physical objects. But uh, Pierre has an example for uh, physical objects where you actually cannot touch the data. So um, this is not necessarily included. Yes. Do you have it there? Uh, yeah, I have it. You have more toys to show, Pierre? This is using, uh, yes, this is another thing that we tried. Actually, oh, I wanted nice. to try that. It's a subsurface uh, engraving. Uh -huh. the, the piece of glass. I think you saw this in, in some stores. Uh, it's usually more kitsch stuff like dolphins and souvenirs. But okay. you can actually ask, um, you can actually send a 3D model to some stores and they will, they will make it for you. And why, Is it laser etched or how do they do it? It's laser subsurface engraving. So mm -hmm. there is a laser here moving and, and which can focus at any uh, height and it's extremely precise and fast. Yeah. And so it creates micro, oh yes, it creates micro bubbles. So I wanted okay. to see if you could, uh, you know, which, which resolution you could, for example, draw uh, characters, labels and lines, you know, those were for grid lines. Uh -huh. It's actually uh -huh. very precise. Uh, and why was that interesting? It's because, but even we talk about that with the, uh, about the process of uh, digital fabrication. You cannot build uh, everything using uh, a 3D printer or a laser cutter because you cannot build objects which float in the air, for example. And and uh, using a laser cutting, uh, like even did, works for 3D bar charts, for example, because they, they, they can physically exist. But uh, 3D scatter blots, for example, uh, you have those things floating in the air. It's more difficult to build. <laughs> so with that, you can you can do almost any any 3D object. Uh, but so we did that. It's just a test. This was a test. We paid uh, about 60 euros for that. Uh, the, there are several problems with that though. And I, I'm a bit less excited about that now. Uh, although some people proposed to use that for already before for scientific visualization. There is an article from Paul, um, Paul Bork, I believe. Yes, a poster who is uh, from University of Western Australia who used who did a poster about using that to communicate scientific uh, data. So, okay, one problem is that you can see that there is a refra uh, refraction, right? Some objects are doubled. Yeah. So it's it kind of changes the the, the, the the perception of depth. It's a bit weird. It's like in an aquarium or when you see those fishes. There's reflection, which doesn't help reading. Uh, objects don't cast shadows, which is a bit weird. So they don't seem really, they don't seem real. And you cannot touch them. <laughs> you cannot touch the data. And that, that's something that we found, uh, that, yeah, that even found uh, after the experiment. Actually, we didn't know about that really. We're really more interested in how people perceive those objects. But it turns out it's very important to be uh, able to touch the data for some tests. And so, so you didn't expect that, the, are you saying that you didn't expect at the beginning that touch would be so important? It's more something discovered during the study? No, I was, yeah, myself, I was really interested in perception. 
And I think Yvonne was more interested in, uh, you know, the way you can actually use a, handle a physical object and interact with it somehow. But I thought, yeah, w when you talk about physical, tangible objects, everyone says touch, you can touch them, but it, it, what's the point? Okay, you, can, you have eyes, right? Eyes are much more powerful. <laughs> But there is touch and touch. <laughs> so, yeah, we have touch can mean many different things. It, touch, it's, it can be the tactile sense, right? It's sensing with your fingers. I think that's not that important as far as uh, physical visualizations are concerned. But uh, in Yvonne's experiment, people were much more, um, it helped them a lot because they, they, had, to, they had to mark, to highlight those, you know, bars of interest and columns and rows. So it acts like a memory aid. Uh, and this is, this is not really the, about the tactile sense. It's more about using your fingers to visually, as visual bookmarks. Mm. But there's yeah. proprioception too, which probably contributes. So, yeah. So can I ask you guys, how did you come up with this idea at all? Is there a, I'm wondering if there's a long story behind it or just you came up with this idea and, and said, well, let's, let's do it. It's difficult to, I think it's a follow-up work from uh, Yvonne's uh, first uh, uh, project about uh, tangible user interfaces for information visualization. Yes, this comes more from the idea of tangible interfaces from HCI where um, um, Georges Fitzmaurice, he started with bricks to have uh, physical representations of uh, digital objects. And so when I started my thesis, my first project was uh, about having physical controls for visualization, for wall-size display visualizations. And after that, um, yeah, this was kind of like the approaching this from the other end. And uh, what about if we make the visualization itself physical and not just uh, the control? And this was also kind of interesting since uh, most InfoVis research is, um, well, yeah, it's screen-centered. Everything is about... Uh, uh, Yes, screen visualizations. And so, um, yes, we try to approach this from the other end and see how much can we do actually already with uh, static physical visualizations. Mm -hmm. And so this is just uh, kind of the beginning. And from there, there's, there's a whole spectrum of more hybrid and active visualizations between the the standard on screen and um, the completely static that I studied so far. Okay. And as Yvonne said, yes, uh, what's interesting is that InfoVis has been mostly screen centered, but also tangible research on tangible uh, user interfaces, which dates back from, I don't know, even maybe 94, I guess, at least, has been uh, almost exclusively uh, input centered. Like people were using, so this idea of reusing physical objects, right? Something that we kind of lost since we introduced uh, computers, reusing physical objects to uh, improve user interfaces has been used almost uh, for input, right? Yes, we are very good at, at manipulating physical objects, so it, it, there can be a benefit there. And including InfoViz, if you look at the work in InfoViz on tangible user interfaces, there is not much, there is, there is Brig Ulmer's, work, for example, it's, uh, and Petra Eisenberg too from our team, 
it's all about using physical objects for input, but then the visualization is still on the on the screen, right? And I think we are the first uh, to do a, at least a controlled study about using physical objects as output to to, to really display information. Mm -hmm. So the, the, there is one thing that came into my mind. I was wondering, so the whole area of scientific visualization when normally people, the, where the main task is really trying to kind of have a, a 3D representation of a physical object. So this could be something like, I don't know, the brain of a human, the art, or um, I don't know, uh, one of these... Yeah, or a wind tunnel where they study how wind goes through, I don't know, an airplane or whatever, right? So this looks to me like the perfect case where people might want to have some physical presentation of of, of this data because probably having the 3D representation, the physical representation of something that is originally a 3D object hypothetically should work better. So I'm surprised that nobody did it so far. So do you know anything about it? Are there any, any? do you know if any researchers did uh, similar studies to yours in the past that are more focused on the physical representation of 3D phenomena? Um, th there has definitely been work on... Um more um, model oriented so basically like um, models for um, molecules in chemistry or um, there has been work to um, build physical models out of um, protein foldings and viruses that can uh, i don't know there was a reassembling auto reassembling thing so um there's there's a lot of work out there about um, more um, you know cyvis uh, data mm -hmm. and um, well the the kind of abstract infovis visualization so far there's not that much except for a few data sculptures. i mean what i found interesting when when i sort of dived into the topic and also when i discovered your great collection of projects is that actually the, most of the projects seem to come more from a design or art background. Yes, exactly. Right? So, and I think that's that's really interesting. That, I mean, that happens a couple of times, but here it's it's a great example of how how maybe artists are fascinated by a certain form of expression, and just later it's being analyzed. You know, right. like how well it works or in which settings it works, good or not. And um, I don't know. Shall we from the, from the functional point of view? Yeah, 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 yeah. We we could go through a few of the let's say the the, the classic projects if you like. Yeah, that's that's another thing I, that we didn't mention yet. So, uh, Yvonne and Pierre have a very nice uh, uh, long list of uh, data sculptures. Uh, I think we are gonna put these these links on the on the website after recording the the show. Um, so, if I remember well, you have a you have two lists, right? So one is passive physical visualizations and the other is active physical visualizations. So can, can you briefly tell us the story of, of, of this couple of lists that you keep maintaining there? Because it looks really impressive. I mean, the first time you sent the link to me, I was kind of, kind of shocked. I couldn't believe there were so many examples around. So it looks like a brief history of physical visualization in a, web, in a couple of web pages. <laughs> 
Yes. Okay. So, um, yeah, this started as a kind of a collection of examples of what uh, has been done so far and what has been, how have physical visualizations been used in the past. And yeah, we were surprised ourselves that there are so many examples and that they are very old examples too. We have some, some from 30, well, it's appeared in a book from 39. So they are probably even much older. And there are some very, very nice examples from, I don't know, like uh, the the maps with chef reliefs for, I actually don't know what the relief is there. I don't know. Do you know, Pierre? I think, you yes, you added this one. Yes. The physical maps. Yeah, uh, there are many. So uh, I think we kind of, we we make the difference, at least in our paper, between functional physical visualizations, uh, as you mentioned, and those which are are come from more design and art and whose uh, goals are a bit different. And it's true that these days, today, uh, maybe 99.9% of physical visualizations come from uh, design and art. So there is a huge variety of things, very exciting things, and people like it. I mean, they keep emailing each other about, oh, look at this new data sculpture. So yeah, they, they, this is a big trend, and uh, we've been partly inspired by that. Uh, but, and I will uh, maybe talk about it a bit later by showing some examples, uh, there are examples of functional physical visualizations which date back from yeah, 35 and even at the beginning of the 20th century. And they have been built for really doing visual analytic tasks. And the reason why they disappeared is very simple, is that it's with computers because <laughs> those are difficult to build and uh, they were worth building before. Uh, today... Oh, today maybe less, but I think part of our work is showing that this, they are still worth investigating. Yes, and, and maybe and even then found this uh, made this distinction in our distinction in our webpage uh, between uh, passive and active visualizations. Maybe even you want to explain what, what what's the difference. Well, the difference there is um, basically that the statics, uh, the passive, are completely. Well, passive. They don't contain any uh, electronics. And the active ones, they are in some way, all of them are electronic, either by some motors or LED lights or, um, I don't know, what else is there? So are physical visualizations that can change their appearance, right? Yes. Well, actually, it's a bit more complicated since you, um, I have an example, actually, for... Um, this one, uh -huh. this one can be taken apart and resorted, for example. So you can ah, reassemble it. Cool. <laughs> so yeah, where do you put that. this? Yeah. It's, it's not really static anymore. <laughs> so this becomes interactive. And so, um, yes. But it's not self-changing, let's say. It, no. it, you know, it's just... No, a, this is uh, manual labor. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but that's really much along the lines of, you know, tools for thinking. And, uh, you know, you also have the example of, of Bertin's uh, matrices where he would rearrange, you know, like this um, Cartesian grid. 
And I think this this idea of like thinking with your hands, I think it's very much infamous taken to the extreme if you think about it, you know, like really grabbing the data and like putting it somewhere else. I think that's that's the ultimate you can get. <laughs> I think that the reorderable metrics from Bertan is probably one of the most probably the most uh, well-known physical visualization ever. Yeah. And if I remember the the story correctly, I think Daniel Fiquet actually told the story to me. I think he met him and he showed to him the real, the real reorderable metrics he did. And I think the story is basically what you said, Pierre, that at that time the technology was still uh, not advanced enough. So on, the only way to to create a proof of concept of the ideas he had in his mind was to actually build a physical object and, and reorder rows and columns and see whether there were any clever strategies to create, to make interesting visual patterns out of some data, right? Is yes, it correct? Yes, and I, I, I have a demo if you want. You have a demo, demo. sure. We yes. want to see the demo. Okay. I have to move the camera a bit. <laughs> I like this. This episode is full <laughs> of magic tricks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Rabbit. So you have oh. a reorderable metrics there. Nice. Wow. Is it the original one or you made one yourself? <laughs> Actually, this is uh, a very this is a simplified version. I just have okay. to find the right way to, to put the camera. <laughs> uh, I think it worked yesterday very better nice. than that. <laughs> yes, I guess like this would work. Yes. Yeah, no, this is actually, the, the, this has been built by a researcher called Inner Leaf from uh, Tallinn University, University of Technology in uh, Estonia. And he studied uh, matrix reordering. He wrote a very, uh, very interesting hi hi historical paper about mat matrix reordering. And he built those physical... Um, visualizations, those uh, physical matrices, and he, he built different ones and he gave them to friends, including Jean-Daniel Fequet. So Jean-Daniel has this on his desk and he's showing it all the time and see, look, it's very nice, you can do this. <laughs> but no one understands really. So I uh, emailed uh, Inner and he explained to me how to use this and I have a demo and I can make you a demo. So. This is, okay, for those people who don't know, this is a matrix visualization. So why, why is the matrix visualization, why, why is it cool? Because it can show lots of things. So those are, uh, a matrix visualization is basically a table, data table, but you replace uh, numbers by shade, shades of gray or uh, maybe glyphs, whatever you want. You just replace numbers by small visualizations. This is a binary. It's just binary zero or one. Okay, here it's not very visible, but it's supposed to be dark and and uh, or uh, um, light uh, wood. So we can show lots of things. This is a adjacency matrix, <laughs> right? So if you have a link between this and this, then you have a dot. So you can show matrices with that weighted matrices if you want to, and you can show multidimensional. Uh, Data, you know, this is the example from Bertin. The camera is a bit too close, but yes, this is basically. Um, yes, how can I show that better? Yes, uh, th those letters on the top are places. They are places, and every place has a feature. It has a, it has a school or not. It has or not a railway station, and and yeah, you use those uh, black squares. So you. And actually, so Lean, uh, Inner Leaves shows that those kind of visualizations, which have been described by Bertin, 
but actually which have been used by scientists uh, from the end, already end of uh, 20th century, no, 19th century, are very, very common. They're, they're, they were used a lot. And the first thing that people did for, to analyze data is the, the reorder. This is very important because, and this is the reordered version of the, what I showed you. If you don't reorder, you don't see anything. If you reorder, you see, uh, you see a lot. You see uh, groups, patterns, clusters, and reordering is, is uh, very, very important. And it has been used in archaeology, for example, for re relative dating. It has been used for classification, very important. And lots of people have been reordering uh, matrix, matrix visualizations. But there were no algorithms at the beginning of the 20th century. And the reordering was done visually. It works well visually. But the problem is, how do you get from, yes, from this, <laughs> right? When you have no computer, remember, you have uh, from this. This is, I have no idea how they did. But Bertin found a solution to that. So this is the matrix. <laughs> so no this TV. is, yes, this is a subset actually of, uh, this, is a, this is a subset of Bertin's, uh, <laughs> it's a subset of the example I showed you before, which is famous example from his book. Uh, and I will show to you how it works. So use this to uh, reorder. It's a bit like a Rubik's cube. You can, uh, if you cannot move a cell without moving either the, the entire column or row. Okay, so there are holes. Uh, I can, for example, choose to move this cell. Uh, so I insert this here. I don't have much training and it's very... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I will put that here because it's different. Then uh, let me move this. Okay, that's, so that's fine here. This here. Then, uh, you know, this line is similar to this one. So we move it closer and make some space. I think it's the first demo of uh, Bertin's uh, physical matrix ever. <laughs> you can see lots of photos online, but uh, only photos, right? You, there is no video, I think. That's true. Yeah. And I think no one understands how it works. And, I and by the way, in the end, I think he made poster prints from that, right? So I, I once exactly. saw a photo where he had a big like light table or like light coming from above and photo. Yes, he had huge mm -hmm. matrices like that, which yeah. he actually used for actual projects, you know, and uh, he had very complicated, more complicated device than that for reordering them. And But he said with assistance and and... And the proper devices, it only needs three days to build one. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, three weeks well to, yeah. and three weeks to reorder them and understand the data. So that, that, that's fine. <laughs> Two weeks to find again the pieces your kids have carried in the other room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it seems it doesn't make sense today when you say that, right? I mean, three days to build the visualization and three weeks to analyze it. But uh, in some situations, I think before people could spend lots of time and money building uh, visualizations because some data sets are it's extremely important. I mean, uh, we discussed it a couple of times on the show already. So we had uh, Stephanie Pozavec there as well, who does a lot by hand, let's say, on the computer using Illustrator, but still with manual actions. And, yes. And in a way, the slow treatment of data, like really, you know, 
doing it step by step. It, it does have a different quality than just like flipping through like views superficially, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And we had the same experience with the data cuisine where we cook, you know, data dishes. It's very simple data points, but these data points, you're thinking about them for a day or two, you know, and yes. really think hard about how to represent them and, and what they are and what they mean and where they come from. And, 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 and I mean, Stephen Few, he wrote this article, I don't know if you read it, beginning of the year about slow food and that there might be a slow data um, movement as well. Yeah, that's, really, that's a very good point. Mm. I think back then when there were no computers, people spent lots of time building those uh, building visualizations. And here you can see, oh, more <laughs> or less, you can, see, you can see clusters. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait a second. No, I, I, I prepared this. What do you think? Uh, yes. This here, those are villages. Those are towns. You can see those three groups, right? Towns. They have veterinary uh, uh, police station and those are cities. They have a railway station, high school police station. It's a real data. It's a subset of Bertin's data set. And I just <laughs> reordered it for you. Uh, that's fantastic, Pierre. <laughs> Thanks a lot. We have the first, <laughs> the first real demo of the reorderable, reorderable matrix. Exactly. That's fantastic. I never saw it before. It, it makes a huge difference seeing it live. <laughs> it's it's great. Oh, I want one in. <laughs> so this is this is actually those simplified matrices. So built by Inner Leave. They are okay. So, so Bertin's matrix is a bit different. Maybe I can use screen sharing to show you a few. There are, there are a few pictures online, but maybe I can show you a few pictures here directly. You can see that uh, I was using only one rod. Here they are a lot. And uh, there is, he actually has a technique. This is, uh, these are images from the PhD thesis from uh, Nathalie Henry. And you can unlock uh, rows and columns to reorder. So, I suppose the way it works is that. You can either manipulate all the rows are as a, as single objects or all columns, and you can reorder like that. This is a, oh yes, this is a bigger matrix. I'm not sure you can see, but this is huge. This is this is huge. Yeah, uh, and here I saw where, where I realized he is printing those. exactly. So here he was, I think, according from uh, Jean Daniel, who's really a specialist of Bertin. I'm not. He was using this kind of device to take pictures of those matrices once yeah. he built and reordered them. Yes. So yeah. So, and, and this, uh, so yeah, manipulating, being able to manipulate those visualizations is, yes, it's, it's very interesting, something that we didn't uh, investigate at all. And Yvonne showed, you know, this, this uh, uh, kind of 3D bar chart that you, you can reorder, uh, can reorder countries. And so you can not only, you can change the configuration of physical visualizations very naturally, and you can also build them from scratch, uh, as you mentioned. And that's a very interesting aspect of physical visualizations that, uh, that yeah, I think that we, we want to investigate too. I, I think there's, there's really a few intriguing things about them. And um, so one thing you often don't think about that much, but it's much easier to talk about data. If you have an object, everybody can look at, you know, a screen is always very, it's, it's just for one person mainly, yeah. But an object you can view from all sides, you can point there and somebody else sees you pointing directly. And so it has this, this social aspect and you can place them anywhere. So you can put them on your desk where you have <laughs> a 
a free space. And, and, and so I was wondering, you know, so now we have all these fabrication techniques, so you can mill fairly easily, you can laser etch, you can, uh, you can 3D print. I mean, have you thought about what happens in 10 years when, when 3D printers are, you know, like maybe as widespread as 2D printers now? Do you think they, there will be lots of, of data sculpture objects around, maybe also disposable ones that you just print out for a day or two and then throw them away again and they, they get composted and <laughs> go somewhere else? Or do you think it's going to be a, still a niche and will remain that artsy, artsy type thing? I think it will definitely become more popular to do this once um, you know, the technology is readily available to everybody. Right now you have to order it online or go to a fab lab somewhere in your city if you're lucky and your city has one. And um, well, I guess the 3D printers or whatever comes next that can do the same thing um, will become common. And there are already many people out there who do this kind of self-logging and who collect lots of data about themselves. And I think that those kind of people would probably be very interested to uh, have a, an object representing all this data that they collected. And there are people working on uh, more disposable and recyclable materials for 3D printing. So it's even kind of makes sense to just print an object and then later just throw it in the composter and uh, so there's a recycling process. It's even easier than with paper. You can do it yourself. <laughs> maybe for people who are not familiar with digital fabrication, maybe you can say a few words about uh, today's uh, digital fabrication technologies and, and maybe how you built your physical uh, visualizations. Yeah, this is exactly what I was going to ask. So what's the, what's the current technology that you're using? Because maybe people want to do the same now, and <laughs> I don't know if you want to share the secret with the others. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. So um, there's a, a trend currently that more and more of those uh, fab labs, fabrication laboratories, uh, are popping up in mostly bigger cities for now. In Germany, there are lots already. In France, it's coming over the last couple of years, get more. Uh, in the US, I think there are a lot. And um, so they give the um, possibility to use uh, 3D printers, laser cutters, uh, 3D mills to uh, create all kinds of uh, 3D objects and make it accessible to, uh, well, to normal people, to everybody. You can just go there and you, um, I don't know, you take a tutorial for half an hour or an hour and then you can start making things. And we are currently building such a fab lab here for um, a research collaboration. And at the current stage, we have a 3D printer and a laser cutter. And my favorite machine is the laser cutter since it's very fast. And you can make all kinds of things which are at first 2D. So the, yes, those. This is a 3D object, but I made it out of uh, 2D sheets of uh, acrylic. So in the beginning, it looked like this, which is okay. kind of... So the original see, material you're using is acrylic? Yes, it? it's made out of... Um, it comes... 
Okay. sheets and it's transparent in the beginning and I have uh, lots of uh, graffiti spray paint in my office now <laughs> and uh, yes I give them color after so um, this is kind of a workaround since uh, I don't have access to a color 3D printer which is something that's uh, coming up now that you can actually print in full color and um, yes there's I think who was that uh, Xerox? No. Some some printer company in the US is coming up with a paper-based 3D printing technology where you kind of stack paper layers and you can print the paper in color and so you oh, you get a, I think Staples is buying ah, the yes, technology. Staples. Mm -hmm. yeah. Staples, that was it. Yes. So Yvonne, there is there is something that is not clear to me. If you if you have access to a 3D printer, do you still need a laser cutter? Well, the 3D printer that we have is uh, monocolor, so it only can do objects in one color. And this one is much more difficult to read than a multicolor version. And it's it's one object; it's they those are all connected, and so it would be much harder for me to uh, to color this. Uh -huh. So you prefer to use a laser cutter and color every single piece. Yes, well, my personal preference would be to have a, a multicolor 3D printer. <laughs> yeah, but, sure. <laughs> That's so fast. They're currently really expensive still. How long did so. it uh, take to? Uh, how long did it take to print this red uh, thing? Uh, this one actually took 24 hours. That's so quite they are still quite slow, but it's an older model, and I think now with the fastest ones available, now this would be doable in I don't know maybe an hour I don't I don't really know since I haven't used those but there are some based on uh, light so they get really made uh, one slice at the time this one basically it's like a, a hot glue gun so it's a, it's a thread of plastic that gets heated and a little printer head that uh, drives around and makes every link, little uh, slice of this and it takes forever. <laughs> and so now they have a, a technology where they use a photo resin, photo reactive resin, I don't know the correct name for this, mm -hmm. which basically reacts to light. So you have a, a fluid and um, a light gets uh, projected onto it with uh, uh, the slice that you want with the 3D layer. And the entire thing is uh, gets solid at the same time. So you, basically it grows out of the uh, liquid. And that's much faster mm. and higher resolution. But, but just to add, I mean, there's a lot of lo-fi techniques you can use as well. So on your page, you have examples made from cardboard. So you can layer cardboard, you know, and you yes. cut it in different ways. So you can create these mountains of things. Um, you can use Lego. You can use Play-Doh. Um, th there was this beautiful exhibition of all the people in the world where each person in the world was symbolized with a grain of rice and then they had different heaps of, you know, yes. grains of rice and you just basically need rice and, and a scale, you know, and with the scale you can do the measurement and then make a big heap of something. So it's, I think it's much, much more a mind, mind thing, you know, if you just have the idea of yeah, to actually use this culture and then you'll find a way yeah exactly so there's, there's lots of ways of doing them yeah. so it depends on how accurate you want your physical visualization to be and sure. if you want to streamline the production process you were mentioning uh, uh, data driven jewelry for example and 
yeah, being able maybe to, uh, as, as you mentioned, to, to change every day, we change your jewelry according to, I don't know, your mood, uh, evolution of your mood the last day or how, how well you slept, uh, I don't know, your sleep cycles. Then, yeah, then uh, using digital fabrication automates the process and would could make that possible. The, the shorter you sleep, the bigger gets your cup. So how accessible is today this kind of technology? So if, if I want to buy a, a printing, 3D printing machine, is it something in the order of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? Um, it kind of depends. So if you're willing to invest some work and build one yourself, I think they start around maybe 600 euros, something around there. You can get a, um, a Repli... Reprap? Oh, yes, a Reprap. Um, but you have to build it yourself. So you basically go to someone with a Reprap. He prints parts that you need and you need a few parts more and some motors and then you can build it yourself. That's quite cheap. Um, then there are things like uh, MakerBot. There's uh, in New York, there's uh, MakerBot Industries and they have uh, quite nice um, small, like, okay, this is not very visible, uh -huh. like uh, small machines that, um, yes, allow to do 3D printing at home. Uh -huh. uh, they've been around for a while now and they um, yes there's a big community around this by now and then there's uh, I recently read about a startup I think it was from MIT I'm not sure um, they have one of those photo resin things it's a kickstarter project and um, they will sell it I think for three thousand dollars something like that and you get a very nice looking machine that's for people who want something nice on their desk but it's the same thing you just uh, have a 3d model you send it and um, you can print it okay. but maybe to get started there's also online services so you can send stuff yes. to shapeways or yes. or other websites and then it's really like 50 to 100 euros or so and you can get a decent piece Yes. Just the nice thing about Shapeways is that they have all kinds of materials. Mm. So most of these uh, home printers, they all do plastics. And at Shapeways, you can you can even print in metal. And at some point, they announced glass. I'm not sure they do that by now. You could have glass objects. You can have them uh, covered with a gold thing. So you can really make a jewelry yourself that looks like it's gold. Cool, cool. Yes. And then there are fab labs where you just go. If if you live in a big city and there's one, you can just go there and um, either... So a fab lab works in a way that they're basically renting the space to you and then you have to do everything by yourself. Yeah, there are different uh, concepts. So some require membership, some uh, have open days where you just go there and you bring your material, you can use the machines for free. It's more like um, a club, really. Like, you know, there's lots of people hanging around and they help you. And Yeah, it's a bit like a hacker space. Exactly. Partially. Yeah, there are different concepts. In Amsterdam, for example, they even rent this out to companies and they can uh, book the lab for a day or for per hour. And I guess that's how they uh, finance themselves. 
But there are also many at uh, universities which are not always, but often uh, open to the public. Okay. So I guess you guys are planning to do some more research and development in this direction. Is there anything you can tell us about what are your plans for the future? Well, I'm currently looking into more interactive settings. So what can you do that um, is kind of more closer to um, actions, to interactions you can do on a screen Infobis application? And um, well, one example is this where you can already do sorting and filtering. Uh -huh. It's manual, but it's possible. And so there's this whole spectrum between those completely static and added with electronics. And so I'm currently looking into how much do I have to add to uh, get to a certain level of uh, uh, functionality. I'm seeing little mamushkas for drill down uh, interaction. <laughs> there's a box and a box and a box. Excellent idea. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of work though. A bar chart in a bar chart in a bar chart. <laughs> a I mean, nested, nested bar charts. <laughs> okay. And are there any classic visualization techniques that you thought about implementing physically other than bar charts? you think there are other techniques that can be easily implemented? It, it would be nice to see. I don't know. I was thinking about tree maps or whatever. Yeah, I don't so know. Uh, tree maps, um, definitely possible. Uh, I was thinking about uh, pie charts, not very uh -huh. popular necessarily on the screen, but uh, I think they could be very nice as uh, physical objects, even in 3D and stacked versions and um, uh, you could make nice bubble charts with balloons, you know, like actually the whole room, you know, and with like <laughs> helium balloons with different sizes and different, you know, heights. A real bubble chart. A real bubble chart. <laughs> A balloon chart. Yes, well, that one's actually kind of problematic since um, I'm trying to have data accurate visualization. So they are, that's why I'm using digital fabrication technology. So they actually accurately represent the data to the accuracy of the uh, machine. And that's quite high for the laser. For the laser, it's about, I don't know, it's 0 0.05 millimeters accuracy. So, um, Yeah, that's uh, accurate enough. By, to, by the way, um, when we worked on the data um, sculpture for the Emoto project, we also had this idea of testing it with blinds. You know, blind people? Mm -hmm. Because they have these highly trained fingers also for, like, you know, feeling uh, heights and so on. Oh, yeah, there, there it is. Yeah, I was and waiting for the moment when uh, we were <laughs> going to talk about that. No, no, we talked about it a few times already. I, I just uh, no. remembered that, that we thought it would be really nice to have like a few blind people and, and talk to them and, and see how they experience these types of things, how well they can read it, uh, if they would be interested in, in having something like that and so on. So, I mean, that from an accessibility point of view, it's a whole new perspective as well. Yes, definitely. Although it requires some more, um, yeah, kind of translations since uh, they are not able to read the labels or the scales which are currently necessary to read this. So even though they would be able to read the data, they don't 
wouldn't be able to uh, get to the yeah to the labels to the mm -hmm. description to know what it means. Yeah, but it's not far away. I mean, you can use Braille uh, writing on on the sides, and then you're there. Yeah. So another thing I was wondering, did you guys spend any time thinking about what could be the practical applications of physical visualization? So for sure, there is a lot of space for uh, artistic stuff, but is there anything that is more related to functional uses of physical visualization? Well, I think Moritz mentioned this earlier, that it's uh, very nice to, uh, if you talk about data, so uh, you could imagine this in a showroom of a store to um, to communicate um, differences between products to customers, or um, you could imagine uh, in a I don't know a business meeting, for example, to uh, print out the the sales data from last year to talk about and I don't know. Or as I mentioned before, like the uh, personal data. So those objects are actually quite popular here in the lab and people, they, they always ask me if they could have one for their desk as a pretty object. And so I actually could imagine that um, yeah, people would print stuff just to have a nice object. Yeah, I think personally, I think there is a connection between physical visualization and, and ambient visualization. So peripheric objects that you can keep somewhere and just by the fact that they actually occupy some real space in, in space, they, they, they have a presence, right? And the fact that they have a presence can actually keep, uh, I don't know, either reminding you some information or again, as I said, can be some kind of peripheric information you can always refer to. And you know that this object is physically there. So I think it's, this, this could be a huge advantage. Yeah, definitely. You don't have to turn it on. Yeah, you don't have to turn <laughs> yeah, it on. For yeah, yeah, I mean, digital objects are so easy to lose that mm -hmm. that sometimes you have the problem of finding over finding them over and over again, right? But the physical object is something that is there and it has its, its presence. So I think that's a huge advantage of of phys I, I can see in physical visualization. But so One thing would... that I can Sorry, Sorry if I interrupt. <laughs> one thing that one thing that I cannot really see how it's gonna evolve is how dynamic these these interfaces can be. So I think it would be much, much more valuable if we have a physical object that can actually change its shape or color or whatever in time. And it's not clear to me how far we are from having objects like this. Maybe you can briefly comment on this. I think this is what you what you call active physical visualizations, right? Yes. But it's not clear to me how wide is the gap from going from something like the bar chart that you've shown and stuff that can actually, I don't know, be connected to a network and change its shape as the data changes. Well, there's a, a trend in uh, HCI to build um, shape displays or shape changing displays which um, basically yeah, are like a, a programmable uh, height surface. So they, they can usually just change uh, in a, like uh, two and a half D fashion. So there's, a, I think I had an example here. Is there um, anything you can show on the, 
the yes. on the screen that would be helpful yes i have too many windows open here <laughs> <laughs> yes there it is um here so wow you see it yeah. Yep. Yes. Okay. This is a shape display built at uh, MIT Media Lab by uh, Daniel Leitinger. It was a demo at the TI conference, um, I think, four years ago. And those are controlled by motor faders. So each of these pins can move independently. And um, they, what does he say there, 120. So those are 120 pins, 120 motor faders. And uh, this is mainly used for this kind of surfaces. So you cover this with a, a, I think it's some kind of latex sheet or something. And so, yes, here you can see this. Um, yeah, this can be used to, uh, yeah, tar for Terran visualizations. So more map oriented stuff. And then he built another one which is uh, more a little bit like uh, bar charts, actually. As they... Okay, I'm... Enrico, will you have copyright problems if, I, if we show a, a piece of a movie, a movie scene from X-Men? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Maybe uh, YouTube, you know. Yeah. Huh? I have it ready, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. YouTube has this automatic, uh, you know... Um, can I show it even now or? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I yeah, well, uh, this, but I don't find it currently. Let's try. Let's take this risk. So this is actually a similar idea. It's a shape ch changing display, which yeah changes dynamically. Yeah. But we, so a bit like even, uh, the thing that even shown about a higher resolution. And it's cool to see it in a movie. Wow. Uh, I don't think technically it. it's that far away. I mean, no. no. There's also, I've, I've recently seen a project using muscle wire. So it's like a wire and you can dynamically change more or less the length. Um, so you can build all kinds of things with that. And there is, and then there is Claytronics. Right, Ivan? Yes, Claytronics, although that's really uh, still far away, I yeah. would say, cool. since it's a project based on uh, nanobots. I had this open too somewhere. <laughs> of course, nanobots, crazy. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. the Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's basically pro programmable matter. So, Smart um, dust? Yeah, something like that. Oh. Yeah. So, um, yes, tiny... Basically, tiny robots that can be programmed to take any shape, and they have uh, and wipe out your enemies. Have, uh, <laughs> I, I can have. Uh, it's on YouTube. Okay, so sorry, it looks like I have that. It even yeah. if you want. Yeah, I, I, have, it I have it here. I think yes, it's on oh, YouTube, yes. so it should be fine to put it on YouTube. Oh yeah. Sure, sure, a YouTube video. Oh, on if you put YouTube out. on YouTube, <laughs> you can break the so, internet. Yes, so I think you should talk. This, yes. Yeah, this is basically the um, this yeah Claytronics matter, and here it's okay. This and it supports direct manipulation, and it's, yes, it's concept. So um, 
it's not real, right? Yes, exactly. But um, yeah, this is the future. So at some point, we're probably going to get there and uh, we'll have matter that can just be programmed and... Uh, because the, 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 problem with, yeah, the problem with shape displays, the stuff that uh, we're talking about so far is that the, you can only do 2D and a half. Uh, you, you cannot show any, any, any shape, 3D shape. Because you have those spikes and, and you cannot have stuff which is floating, for example. Yeah, this is the thing you were mentioning before, right? When you've shown the transparent mm. transparent visualization. Well, but anyway, it looks like the technology is there. So the gap I was, I was mentioning probably is not too wide. The technology is there. So probably there is a, there is a future for... Uh, for um, active physical visualizations, and this future is not too far, far away, right? Mm. Well, great. I think it's it's really interesting what you've shown. And but first, we have to, to yeah, we have to study passive visualizations first because we we still don't know nothing about that. So there is still a lot to study even before those technologies are there. Uh -huh. Yeah. So you are planning to study more this kind of static visualizations? Yeah, for example, something again that we didn't study at all is those uh, physical visualizations that you can rearrange manually. So it's passive, but as Yvonne explained, it's also in a way it's active. It's not static. And yeah, sure. it, there, there is a huge design space. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, and there is one last thing that I wanted to ask you. So I guess you you keep updating this this web page with a, with a long list of physical visualizations. So if any of our listeners wants to suggest uh, additional examples, how can they do it? Uh, we actually uh, asked people explicitly on the website. At the bottom of the website, there are uh, links to our websites with email addresses. And if anybody has a nice addition to this, sure, we're happy to add it. So please send it in. Okay, great. So you keep updating this web page, right? Yes, it's mainly me. And I will keep adding because I found even uh, the oldest example we have so far is from 35, but I found examples from 1914. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. uh, from the same uh, author, actually, as the book, very interesting book from uh, 39. I think it's uh, Brinton, William, no, William, or Willard, Cope Brinton. So we have a few examples from uh, his book. It's it's uh, the book called the graphic presentation, and everyone is more or less uh, everyone in. I mean, lots of people in Infovis are fascinated by Bertin because you know people like or you know people like discovering you know forgotten people who already invented or everything, right? And so yeah, Bertin already had. There is already uh, everything in his book, but, but Bertin is from his book is from uh, I think sixty or seventies, no. Uh, yes. And um, yeah, Brinton, he wrote a book in 39 and uh, it's really fascinating because you will find in, in this book lots of things that, uh, that are quite, uh, quite modern and even uh, many examples that are mentioned by uh, Tufty are in this book because uh, Brinton is like Tufty, he, it's not it's different from Bertin because uh, he's mostly commenting works uh, from others. 
And you will find lots of uh, similar, like uh, Napoleon's March is there. Uh, the, the train uh, schedule from uh, Marais is there. And uh, he has only 30 citations in Scholar, much of, most of which are not uh, from Infovis. Bertin has, <laughs> I, I checked yesterday, Bertin has 1,700, so it's not that bad. <laughs> TFT has 6,400 citations. <laughs> And and he's pre he has a previous book which is from 1914. Mm -hmm. Wow! 1914. Do you have the book there? It's actually on archive.org. It's free. It's everyone can access it. Yeah. But do you it's, have a physical really copy nice. in your hands? No, unfortunately not. Oh. And, and the archive uh, the archive book is not. Uh, it's kind of low resolution. It hurts your eyes. Uh huh. Yeah. But yeah, but you, you should it, definitely it's, link to it. It's it's. I flipped through it once. I haven't really read it. Yes. It's really Amazing. cool. Yeah. Yes, you have this, and this is the this is the, this one is from 1914. <clears throat> yes, and uh, many things like time series, uh, so much, much, much older than Bertin, and and yet, uh, so this is an example of physical visualization from oh, nice. uh, wow. uh, 1913. Cool. <laughs> so it's uh, wow. the height. So those are actually okay strips of wood uh, glued glued uh, on top of each, each other, and they show. The how many passengers take every section of this uh, streetcar? Nice, lines. nice. Yes, this is another uh, one with pins, and oh, this one is kind of interesting. Yeah, this one. <laughs> well, <laughs> have a, some kind of yes bar chart on the on the map, and this is from 1907. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we'll add more. So newer and older. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, definitely worth checking out both your site as well as the book. Uh, I can definitely recommend both. Mm. Yeah. Cool. I think we have to wrap up. You have to catch your bus. <laughs> <laughs> so You're going to be stuck in the office for the whole night. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we thanks a lot. Version. Thanks a lot. It's been Thank great you. to see so many <laughs> examples be inspired by the, the work you guys are doing. Um, I have to say I'm really fascinated by these works and uh, I'm looking forward to see what happens. I mean, I really don't know. I think the future is totally open and I want to see what happens now. Mm. Um, super interesting. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, guys. So we'll add uh, a few links on the on the blog post of the episode. And uh, again, if you want to suggest uh, anything... Uh, that can be added to this list. Please give a look to the to the web page and uh, and send an email to to them. Okay. Uh, thanks sure. a lot. That's all for today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting Thank us. Bye bye. Was, was bye. great having you. Bye bye. Bye 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 bye. bye. bye.